Welcome to This Little Light of Mine, the podcast where we explore what happens when you teach a child that they are not allowed to love. Here's your host, James Powell. Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of This Little Light of Mine. My name is James Powell, and I'm so glad that you're able to join me for today's story episode called All Art Welcome. I always dreamed that there would be peace on the other side of the rainbow. I thought that once I was fully out to my family, there'd be no more secrets and everything would be good. Isn't that what all of our pride celebrations are about? Celebrating the freedom to be who you were created to be. I'd always been so fixated and terrified on coming out to my family that I never really looked beyond that point. The years that followed were some of the loneliest of my life. But I didn't realize that I was lonely until recently. Coming out of the closet with my family simply meant that I was no longer hiding one aspect of my life. People talk about having a huge weight lifted off of their shoulders after coming out. For me, my anxiety and depression increased. But again, I didn't realize or understand that until recently. My big secret was out, but my shame that continued to grow and multiply. And now, here's today's story called All Aren't Welcome. In the years that followed coming out to my family, many of the fears, hunches, and assumptions that I had as a younger closeted Christian started to become my reality. I didn't feel like I'd come out of the closet. I felt like I'd removed a bulletproof vest. One of the first changes we experienced as a family was seeing our family of five grow into a family of seven. My little sister and brother weren't that little anymore. They'd started to date. Eventually my sister got engaged, then got married. Next up, same thing for my brother. They were both on the Christian church conveyor belt. They were doing everything like it was supposed to happen. I could see their happiness and I could see how their happiness made my parents proud. But for me, their happiness only deepened my shame and increased my feeling of loss. But again, I didn't realize or understand those emotions until recently. The emotions that I did understand at this time were anger and jealousy. My sister met her American husband while they were on a missions trip to Israel one summer. The conveyor belt journey towards marriage included long-distance phone calls, the visits back and forth, meeting the parents, planning the wedding, her husband moving to Canada to start, them both moving down to the US, and then getting pregnant within the first few years. Everything seemed to work out perfect for my sister. And as things were looking up for my sister, our relationship shifted. And that shift started with the word, we. In the early days, it became common practice for many Christian family members to offer up questions and sharing helpful verses that they thought I might have missed during the first quarter century of my life. So Jim, what about Genesis and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? And clearly Leviticus 18, 22 and 20, 13 show how this choice isn't right. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, you can't get more black and white than that. Let me read it to you. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolator, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I would get quite defensive during those calls and conversations. I'd pull out my well-worn copy of Bulletproof Faith, a spiritual guide for gay and lesbian Christians. I'd quickly scan through my highlighted notes and I'd find a response that would prove to my sister how wrong she was. Come on, Heidi. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 is talking about men engaged in exploitative sex. Sex with minors. Pederasty was a cultural practice in biblical days where older men would use younger boys for their sexual pleasure. The verse says nothing about loving, consensual, same-sex relationships. Do you really think that verse is talking about me? Well, Jim, what we believe. And there it was. We. My little sister was no longer her own person. She had become a we. Her opinions had become their opinions. And it felt like I was being ganged up on. And I felt even more separate from my family. Along with the Bible verse wars came the what God really thinks about your choice to be homosexual books that would come in the mail from a loving aunt. And I'll never forget all of those long, drawn-out conversations that continued to search for the source of my gay. Now let's pause for a quick history lesson on where the Christian church got their theories, thoughts, and opinions on gay people. Because it wasn't from the Bible. All right, now, white man number one. Back in the 50s, a psychoanalyst from Austria named Edmund Bergler moved to the US to flee the Nazis. He hangs up his shingle as a psychoanalyst and builds a practice that includes 11, yeah, 11 homosexuals over his 30-year career. And let's not forget that seven out of those 11 homosexuals were also under his care for schizophrenia. Based on these 11 homosexuals, he fudges his numbers a bit. He rounds up and he claims that he cured 100 homosexuals and made them into healthy heterosexuals. But that's not the only damaging part. The stain that Edmund Burglar left on the world was his claim that homosexuals have a secret conspiracy to recruit innocent children. He just made that up. Now white man number two. Next up, we have Irving Bieber. In 1962, Dr. Bieber wrote a psychoanalytical study of male homosexuality. Sounds really scientific. Now, using information that he had gathered from 106 homosexual patients, again, we can't discount that of those 106 homosexuals that had come to him for help, 28 were schizophrenics, 31 were neurotics, and 42 had addiction issues. They weren't coming to him because they were happy and well-adjusted. With a research budget of a whopping $5,000, and without studying a single homosexual who wasn't already in therapy, Dr. Bieber's study became the bedrock medical proof that conservative Christians used in reparative therapy. His study was used as proof that a person can change from homosexual to heterosexual. And finally, white man number three, in 1967, Dr. Charles Socorides became the psychoanalyst who brought the now debunked pathology 
and the now debunked and illegal practice of repairing the homosexual to the masses in America. Appearing alongside Mike Wallace on a CBS Reports special, The Homosexuals, Dr. Socorridi shared the following myths and theories, again, that he made up. Myth number one, homosexuality is the result of unhealthy childhood development before the age of four. Myth number two, homosexuality can come from a smothering or overbearing mother. Myth number three, homosexuality can come from a passive or absent father who didn't protect their son from those overbearing mothers. Myth number four, you can help fix your homosexual children. Socorridi shared that if a boy did not display maleness, fathers needed to take their sons fishing or perhaps play tennis. Come to think of it, is that why my parents took me to tennis lessons? I don't know. And for girls? Of course, teaching a girl to bake, do laundry, and clean house would likewise lesbian-proof their daughter. Hey mom, remember when you taught us to do laundry? Maybe that's why I'm gay. And all kidding aside, myth number five, children become gay because of their parents. It's their parents' fault. Socorides shamed and blamed parents and compelled them to help fix their children. Sounds like he's a good marketer. So who was Dr. Socorides? He built his entire career to help cure the homosexual. He didn't do any research, didn't have any scientific evidence, but he was great on TV and he was everywhere. Dateline NBC, 60 Minutes, Larry King Live, and of course, CBS. He was just a really passionate parent who made a business for himself by helping other parents be successful with their wayward children. Socrates himself was a father of five. He had a son and daughter from his first marriage, two children from his second marriage, and one from his fourth marriage. And now little Richard? That was his son from his first marriage. And while Dr. Socorridi was working away in his basement office or appearing on TV sharing his theories about absent fathers, Richard was upstairs, coming out of his own closet. Now thank God that he didn't go to his own father when he needed help. Richard sought help outside of his family. And later, he became Bill Clinton's senior advisor for public liaison for gay and lesbian issues. And that's it. The work of each of these three men has been disproven, debunked, and in some cases, deemed illegal. These three white men laid the foundation and created the so-called research and evidence that was used and continues to be used by evangelical churches to shame, blame, maim, and kill our LGBTQ2S plus children. These three men created the lies that continued to haunt me and my parents to search for the source of my gay. I'm ashamed to remember and talk about how I treated my sister during her wedding. Unable to temporarily detach from my own shame and focus on my sister's happiness, I refused to be part of her wedding party. If my church wouldn't consider marrying me, why the heck would I be part of someone else's wedding? I was also really paranoid about being around my sister's fiance's family. Has she told them about me? Do they know about our family's dirty secret? How did that conversation go? What do they think about me? They're even more conservative than us. Did they disapprove? Are they going to confront me? And then it hit me. Maybe my sister was so ashamed and afraid that my brokenness would risk her reputation 
in her marriage. Maybe she kept me in the closet. Maybe she didn't even tell his family. These were the thoughts going through my head, but I was too afraid to ask. Our family dynamic changed once again when my siblings started to have kids of their own. I've always loved being around children and I couldn't wait to meet my nieces and nephews. I was hopeful for a next generation. Maybe they would be raised differently. Maybe they wouldn't have to feel so alone and unwanted. When my first nephew was born, it was important to me that he had the opportunity to know who his uncle was. I didn't want him to know the same shame that I was raised with. I did some research and found the perfect baby gift to welcome him into our world. The Sissy Duckling is an award-winning children's book that follows the story of Elmer the Duckling, who is mocked for being different, but who ultimately goes on to prove his bravery for being himself. Guess what? This Sissy Duckling did not go over well at all. I ended up receiving a stern warning from my sister and her husband. I was told that if I wanted to be part of my nephew's life, that I had to respect the beliefs of their family and respect that they are the parents and that I should not ever overstep my boundaries. That message was received loud and clear and I quickly learned to play the role of the fun uncle. A few years later and a few kids later, our family celebrated what I now call Summer Black Friday. I had taken a Friday off of work and was excited to travel out to my sister's place and spend the afternoon with my mom my sister, my sister-in-law, and my nieces and nephew. I brought the snacks and the treats for the kids and we were gonna have a fun afternoon together. We shared a hot dog lunch and as the kids were playing together, my sister said, we need to talk. She went on to explain that a couple weeks earlier, I had been at one of the kids' birthday parties and was sitting on a couch in between my boyfriend and my dad. She pointed out that I'd been sitting with my arm extended along the back of the couch directed towards my boyfriend. Okay, sure. What do we need to talk about? Well, Jim, we've been talking. And as our kids are getting older now, we need to raise them in a household that praises the Lord. We can't confuse them by allowing that type of homosexual lifestyle under our roof. We can't condone that type of behavior. We need to protect our children. What? I was stunned. I really didn't know what to say. I looked over at my mom for some sort of support. I could see the pain in her eyes, but she remained silent. My sister continued by explaining the new rules that had been created by my siblings and their spouses. Moving forward, I was welcome to events at their home, but my longtime partner Peter, he was no longer welcome. My mom spoke up and affirmed that Peter was still welcome at any events at their home and was still considered part of our larger family. None of this made any sense to me, and I started to ask questions. What are you going to tell the kids when they ask why Peter isn't coming to their birthday parties or dinners? They've known Peter for their entire lives, and quite frankly, they think he's more fun than me. Peter can't come here to your house, but he can come to mom and dad's place? How does that make any sense? How does any of this have to do with protecting the kids from anything? What do you actually think you're protecting them from? But my questions, they were futile. They had made up their minds and their rules were black and white. I could accept them or I could reject them and not take part in any family events at their homes. 
The next few years were heartbreaking. We complied with her homophobic rules. Peter would drive me out to kids' birthday parties, and then he would go off and read at a Starbucks for a couple of hours before returning to pick me up and drive us both back home. The kids were confused, and whenever they saw me, they would run up and their first question would always be, where's Peter? Several years after coming out to my family, I felt a pull to have a conversation with the lead pastor of my family's church. John Thompson, who's only a couple of years older than me, had always been a family friend. We'd grown up together, we went to youth group together, and now he was the lead pastor of our family's church. I made an appointment to see him and made the trip out on a weekday afternoon. In hindsight, I think I was looking for his approval and thought, surely John won't uphold the same homophobic views that older pastors held on to. But boy, was I wrong. The long conversation that I had with John that afternoon ended with him saying, James, I guess we're just going to have to agree to disagree. It was that easy for him. It was like having a debate over, is pineapple a real pizza topping? Agree to disagree? We're talking about my life. How God designed and created me. My ability to love and be in a relationship with another man. I was just cast out. I wasn't welcome. His agree to disagree? That was him telling me that he considered me to be a sinner. And these were just some of the experiences I had after coming out that affirmed why I had stayed in the closet for so long. I was right. My family, my church, and the people who were supposed to love and protect me, they weren't safe. I wasn't crazy for being afraid to come out. I was right. The sign on the church may have said, all are welcome, but that didn't include me. And what I had always assumed and what I now know, all aren't welcome. And that needs to change. What have you observed in your life? When you've come out of the closet or shared something big in your life, did you feel like a giant weight was lifted? Or did you continue to experience uncomfortable shifts and changes like I did? What I'm learning and experiencing is that coming out is not a one-time event only for LGBTQ2S plus humans. Coming out is an ongoing lifetime process for every single one of us. Our life's purpose is to continually evolve by learning and growing through the pain and discomfort of facing our fears of being authentically seen. Somewhere along my own journey on the evangelical conveyor belt, I started to believe that if I was living in alignment with God and free from sin, that I would have a reasonably comfortable life free from any real big pain or challenges. I started to believe that pain is bad, doubt is bad, questioning authority is definitely bad, being different is bad, stumbling is bad, and that sin is bad. But guess what? None of these things are actually bad. In fact, we need all of these things in order for us to grow, evolve, and live our life's purpose. We naturally start to live our life's purpose when we create a space and a practice to accept the discomfort that naturally comes from being with our fears. Growth is supposed to feel awkward, uncomfortable, scary, and unnatural. 
I like to use the simple example of going to the gym. I don't walk into the gym and expect my muscles to grow without experiencing any discomfort. I walk into the gym and I know that I need to exert myself. I know that muscle growth actually comes from hurting my muscles. When I'm working out, I push myself and create small micro tears in my muscles. The workout increases blood flow that starts pumping and targeting those micro tears. And after a couple of hours, starts the process of healing and repairing them. And it's the healing and repairing process where I feel the pain. Usually it's the next day or two days after Hulk-like leg workouts with Kristen. This healing is called regeneration. And our muscles are designed to heal stronger than before the micro tears. This process is called muscle growth. And after years of going to the gym, I've learned to associate this pain as good. I know that this pain means that I'm producing the results that I'm looking for. In fact, I've programmed my brain to miss and sometimes obsess over looking for this kind of pain. Like right now, after being locked out of the gym for nearly six months, I miss that pain. Now I get that this type of pain is good and needed when it comes to my muscles, but I still continue to resist any type of pain when it comes to other forms of relational growth. And I'm learning that this comes from years of trauma. Trauma from being excluded, marginalized and shamed. And my trauma is quite common. This trauma comes from our lack of inclusion in our world. We've created a mind-blowing array of man-made systems to exclude, marginalize and oppress others. We've been programmed to think that we need to believe, behave, think, feel, look and love in exactly the same way as others. We've been programmed to have a fear-based scarcity mindset, programmed to search out and identify an enemy, and to fight to keep them out or hold them down. We've been programmed to think that by oppressing others and keeping them on the outside, that that is what makes us safe. We've been programmed to feel comfortable and safe when we feel like we're part of the in-crowd, or at least part of the majority. We've been programmed to believe that we're safe when we exclude. We've been programmed to believe that it's bad to be the black sheep. And the sad part is, much of this programming is correct and it works. Excluding, marginalizing, being unwelcoming, oppressing, and using a scarcity mindset is effective. But it's only effective to those at the top of the pyramid. The person, politician, CEO, and pastor, they need us to believe. They need us to believe and act based on this programming. When we follow their script, it secures their position and it keeps their power structure in place. Think about that for a minute. What might happen if we all chose to give up our scarcity mindset and our addiction to labeling things as our enemy? If we didn't have FOMO, we stopped obsessing about what we don't have, and we stop trying to fight against an invisible enemy, our westernized civilization, it would crumble. Most people in power need you to live a fear-based life because fear makes humans feel dependent. And comfort, that's what takes the edge off. So those holding on to power and looking to control, they're invested in keeping you comfortably miserable. That's their sweet spot. But know what keeps the people at the top of the pyramid up at night? They are afraid that we might discover our collective power 
and possibility of living an uncomfortable, purpose-fueled life. And we can do that right now. You can do that right now. We already have all the tools. You already have all the tools. And come to think of it, this is the message that Jesus came to share with our world. Love yourself and love your neighbor. All of them. Not just the ones that look like you, think like you, and act like you. And not just the ones that love in the same way as you. And not even just the ones that believe in the same things as you. We are called to love and welcome everyone. This is a call for radical love. The message of Jesus was one of social justice and inclusion, especially towards those on the margins. Because we are all wonderfully, beautifully, and uniquely designed. The way that you think, feel, look, and love has been designed to be different from the person next to you. And that should be uncomfortable. That feeling of discomfort means that you're alive and that you're growing. We've been designed to thrive in this state. So to all my fellow LGBTQ2S plus humans, to all who have been oppressed or excluded because of the color of your skin, your perceived gender, your intellectual or physical disabilities, how your body looks to others, or for any other reason. You have been designed to thrive, and the feelings of discomfort you've experienced throughout your life, that's been like the micro-tears in our muscles. This pain is also our regeneration. We're designed to heal stronger than we were before. And this process is called spiritual growth. And moving forward, this is how I'm going to experience this pain. The pain and discomfort that I've always tried to avoid, I'm realizing is actually my pathway to spiritual growth. And next up on my pathway to spiritual growth is my next interview episode. And even announcing and talking about this one makes me feel uncomfortable and awkward. Because coming up in two weeks time, I'll be sharing an intimate interview with my parents. And as I get ready to close out season one of This Little Light of Mine, I want to invite my parents here to share their personal thoughts, feelings, and insights on our shared journey. I want to hear what they've thought. I'm going to be asking them some of the questions that, quite frankly, I've been scared to ask before. So I hope you'll join us in two weeks' time. And who knows, maybe you'll even invite your parents along. Because for me, it's time to start some of the deep healing and uncomfortable conversations that I've avoided for a lifetime. So until then, go, be safe, and get uncomfortable. Be the black sheep. That's your signal that you're growing, that you're alive, and that you're loved. Welcome to the darkness Thanks for listening to this little light of mine. To learn more about our guests today and for links from our show, visit www.thislittlelightofmine.ca If you enjoyed this episode or feel that it could bring love and acceptance into someone else's life, please like, rate, review, and share so that we can build our community and bring more love into the world for all people. Thank you for sharing your time and listening to our stories today. 
and we would love to hear your story too. Visit the Get Involved section of thislittelightofmine.ca to share your voice. We love being in community with you and look forward to sharing more with you next time. Now go and let your light shine bright because you are loved. As old